I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now, you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now, water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. My friend. Let's kick this one. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome. Welcome to another exciting episode of Cryptique. I'm joined, as always, by a man whose martial arts name is The Last Dragonicologist. <laughs> Ryan, what's up? Dragonicologist. That's, that's... You only fought women. That's a good punk band name. <laughs> I mean, you made a band name joke right before we started, but that's a good punk name band. Or punk band name. Oh, my God. It's already beginning. Anyway, so uh, what's new? Anything you need to update us on? I haven't been persuaded to, I don't know, do any spiritual healings exactly yet. I'm not communing with any Sasquatches. But I'll definitely keep you guys updated. Alright, well yeah, I don't really have anything else to share either, so we may as well just get into it. Tell them what they need to know. Yeah, if you guys would, it would help us a lot if you could rate, subscribe, leave a comment, or preferably share the show with somebody you think might like it. If you want to suggest a topic or give some critique on our critiques, you can do that at cryptiquepodcast.gmail.com. You can check out our buddies over at Parabox, the link in the show notes. Check us out on TikTok and hear some Jay's beats at Cryptique underscore podcast, YouTube at Cryptique Podcast, and see what we're slinging at CryptiquePodcastStore.com. But in any case, what's on the menu tonight? Be water, my friend. My friend. But anyway, tonight we are talking about the Lee family curse. All right, Bruce Lee, born as Lee Jun Fan in November of 1940, and tragically only lived until July of 1973. He was a Hong Kong American martial artist and actor with a career spanning both Hong Kong and the U.S. Because at that time, Hong Kong was British. Not exactly a colony, a territory, I guess. They had like a lease Oh, yeah, on make it. it sound nice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. It's just a hangout. Hey, one of the. Uh, <laughs> We're just going to hang out there and impose all of our rules. Well, and... it sounds like they might have had it a little bit better for a while. Mm-hmm. I know some of the YouTubers that I watch are from Hong Kong, and they, when that was ending, they got out. Really? Yeah. One of them, yeah. He, a couple of them, they moved to England. They're like, well, England doesn't own this anymore. We're just going to go to England. <laughs> All right. Well, they're very strict now, right? Yeah, they are. But he established Jeet Kune Do. Jeet Kune Do. Do, which sounds funny nowadays, but that's just because we're used to hearing puns 
using you know compositions like that uh but this was a martial arts philosophy blending various combat styles and essentially laid the foundation for what we know today as mma or mixed martial arts yep he is commonly regarded as the most influential martial artist ever and is celebrated by critics media and fellow martial artists and i'm sure everybody's heard stories about bruce lee and chuck norris and you know famous Mm -hmm. rivalries and fights that he had or I remember hearing as a kid that in the Bruce Lee movies, they would often have to slow down his action scenes because they'd be hard to follow or people, you know, they would think that it was sped up, but it was just how fast he's so fast that when you're filming and I'm not sure, you know, there may have been a different speed back then, but generally I think it's between like 29 to 33 frames a second for like general film and he's so fast it would look like he was teleporting that's insane at least the standard now i don't know about back then movies are typically 24 frames per second tv is 30 and then 60 frames per second is when you get into that kind of i don't know it almost looks eerie it's like a little too fast but yeah that yeah it was just he was too fast (laughs) But he's a prominent 20th century pop culture icon who bridged Eastern and Western influences. He is credited with revolutionizing Hong Kong action cinema and altering the portrayal of Chinese individuals in American movies. And although he was born in San Francisco, he grew up in British Hong Kong and was introduced to the film industry as a child actor. He moved to Seattle in 1959 and enrolled at the University of Washington in 1961 and launched his first martial arts school from his Seattle home. Adding a second school in Oakland, California, he gained attention at the 1964 Long Beach International Karate Championships through demonstrations and speeches. Relocated to Los Angeles to teach, counting Chuck Norris, Sharon Tate, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar among his students. In the 1970s, his films produced in Hong Kong and Hollywood elevated the popularity of martial arts movies and triggered Western fascination with Chinese martial arts. So we have him to thank for, you know, not only all of his movies, but like the uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme ones that I grew up with. And I, <laughs> I went through a period where I must have watched. Let's not. I think I watched one every night for a couple of weeks at one point. Yeah, let's not blame him for Jean-Claude Van Damme <laughs> or Steven Seagal. Oh, man. Well, not Steven Seagal, but like Bloodsport. Mm. It That's was good. A, yeah. yeah, when you're a kid. Yeah, well, you know, you're like, plot? It's still good now. The fuck do you need a plot for? <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> uh, his film style significantly impacted the global martial arts scene and movie industry. Bruce Lee is renowned for his roles in key Hong Kong martial arts films, The Big Boss and Fist of Fury, Way of the Dragon, Enter the Dragon, and The Game of Death. Lee's global fame skyrocketed, especially within the Chinese community, due to his portrayal of Chinese pride in his movies. He also gained recognition from Asian Americans for challenging stereotypes associated with Asians. So if you haven't seen any of these old portrayals, basically Asians in American or Western movies were portrayed as short with super big super thick glasses that you can't really even see out of and buck teeth and basically all being really stupid so you can imagine when this guy busts onto the scene you know what kind of impact it's gonna have like no this 
this is the other yeah. side of you know you're portraying the worst possible stereotype in every movie but it can also be this yeah he can also be Kato but exactly. yeah I, I've even seen uh, like portrayals in Japanese media where Chinese are depicted mm-hmm. that way <laughs> right yeah anyway do we want to get into his childhood I learned some stuff in researching this episode and I thought I knew a lot about Bruce Lee but y'all need to listen even if you think you know Bruce Lee's father Lee Hoi Chuen was a well-known Cantonese opera singer in Hong Kong his mother Grace Ho had roots in Shanghai and was of Eurasian heritage in December of 39, his parents went to California for a worldwide opera tour in San Francisco's Chinatown. And he was born there November 27, 1940, which granted him U.S. citizenship. And what a wonderful thing. And I'm not saying they planned it or anything like that, but what a wonderful thing if you're born and you have like automatic citizenship in two different countries, right? Yeah. Like maybe you're you're American, but you're born in Germany, and then you get citizenship to both. Yeah. It'd be pretty cool. Anyway, so he wasn't there for long. They moved back to Hong Kong when little Bruce was just four months old. But they faced significant challenges over the following years due to Japan's surprise attack on Hong Kong in December of 1941, which led to the city being under Japanese rule for the subsequent four years. And we did an after party on Japanese torture methods, and they were absolutely brutal. They brutalized the people of China. So I think that's worth mentioning. Bruce Lee made appearances in several films during his childhood. I never knew that. His debut was in Golden Gate Girl, where he played a baby carried on stage. His Chinese stage name, Lee Little Dragon, was chosen because he was born in the hour and the year of the dragon, according to the Chinese Zodiac. At nine, he acted alongside his father in The Kid where he played the lead role based on a comic book character, and this was his first major role. But by the time he was 18, he'd already made 20 films. So he had been an actor from the get-go. So that's something that I thought it was just martial arts. People saw his insane physical abilities and were like, we've got to get that guy on film. But yeah, so he had experience. He rolled in the primary school Catholic LaSalle College when he was 12 years old. After getting into several street fights, Lee's parents believed he needed martial arts training. In 1953, a friend introduced him to Yip Man, a Wing Chun Kung Fu master. However, Yip initially declined to teach Lee due to the tradition of not instructing foreigners in Chinese martial arts. Seems a little racist. Anyway, his mixed European ancestry stemming from his mother's side was a hurdle, but with the support of his friend Hawkins Chung, Lee was eventually accepted into Yip Man's school and began learning Wing Chung. 
But Lee faced resistance from other Wing Chun students due to his mixed ancestry. In 1958, Lee won the Hong Kong School's boxing tournament, defeating the previous champion. Did you know this, Ryan? He excelled in cha-cha dancing and won the cha-cha or <laughs> won the Crown Colony Cha-Cha Championship. A lot of hips in cha-cha, right? I had no idea that there was a a cha-cha championship to win. <laughs> well, you know, it may not be the same as winning the uh, Madrid Cha-Cha Championship, but it's a victory nonetheless. His involvement in street fights continued, even defeating a triad family member. And for the longest time, the Chinese triad was suspected in his death. Basically, that's a Chinese mafia group. Very powerful, very powerful throughout the world, and, and especially in China and Australia, it seems. In response to a challenge from Choi Li Foot Martial Arts School, Lee engaged in a rooftop fight in 1958. After an unfair punch, he retaliated and injured his opponent. Lee's mother intervened with the police taking responsibility and suggesting he return to the U.S. to claim his citizenship. So, yeah, he hurt this kid so bad that, yeah, they called the police and an ambulance and all that. So his mom had to basically be like, please don't take him to jail. But at 18, he moved to the U.S., joining his sister in San Francisco and then later relocating to Seattle for high school. In 59, Bruce Lee began teaching martial arts, naming his approach to Wing Chun as Jun Fan Gung Fu, which basically just means Bruce Lee's Kung Fu. Very clever. He initially instructed friends he met in Seattle, starting with Jesse Glover, a judo practitioner who continued sharing some of Lee's early techniques. One of the things that I guess impressed me most about Bruce Lee is as great as he was. And this is greatness like uh, we're seeing with um, Shohei Otani and like Babe Ruth and Wayne Gretzky, right? He's the best that ever did it on film. Um, he tries to learn as much as he teaches. So he's instructing, you know, judo guys in Kung Fu, but he's also learning judo at the same time. So he established his first martial arts school, the Lee Jun Fan Kung Fu Institute in Seattle. He completed his high school education at Edison Tech School in Seattle and enrolled at the University of Washington in March 1961, or as we say in Missouri, the University of Washington. He studied subjects like dramatic arts, philosophy, and psychology. In early 1964, Lee left university and moved to Oakland to stay with James Yim Lee, a senior Chinese martial artist, no relation. Together, they opened the second June Fon Martial Arts Studio in Oakland. James Lee introduced Bruce to Ed Parker, an American martial artist. At the 1964 Long Beach International Karate Championships, Lee showcased his skills, performing feats like two-finger push-ups and the famous one-inch punch. So, I don't know how many push-ups you can do, Ryan. You could probably get onto your knuckles and do some knuckle push-ups. 
I'm okay at push-ups. I'm not not too terrible. I could probably do 50. May need a, you know, a little oxygen after that, but just for shits and grins, I tried to do four-finger push-ups. You know, thumb and pointer finger on each hand and I could hold myself up for about two seconds and there's film of Bruce Lee doing two finger push-ups right hand pointer finger right hand thumb and he's just plowing through push-ups like 20 25 30 35 if it wasn't on film it would be hard to believe yeah yeah definitely I've never tried doing that exactly but I've done like I don't know. I've done the ones where you push yourself up into the air and then you clap. Like you have to take your hands yeah. all the way off the ground, clap, put them back down. But right, no, no, no way. I'm doing a two finger or four finger or eight finger push up. <laughs> you gonna try right now no. on audio for everybody? So you can hear Come this, on, we'll make it like a morning radio show. <laughs> the slap against the floor down here in my little basement <laughs> recording area. Oh, it's good stuff. It, it is crazy. And email us at crypticpodcast at gmail.com with a short clip of you doing two or four finger push-ups, and I will be amazed. But anyway, the one-inch punch. I'm kind of, um, I don't know, up in the air on this one because we talked about how fast Bruce Lee was. You could barely see him, right? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've seen videos of the one-inch punch, but it looks unbelievable. It doesn't... I mean, it doesn't look like the power comes from his arm. It looks like it comes from his body. You know, his whole body moving. Because pretty much all martial arts I've ever seen talk about putting your whole body weight into it. Because I feel like when you see people just getting into a fight on the street or whatever, or at like a football game... They're swinging their arms, but mm-hmm. somebody who really knows what they're doing has their whole body behind it. And I guess it could be that speed that he's got. You know, the one inch is all he needs well, to shift his body for and get all that, you know, well, what weight he had behind it. He was relatively small. 130? Yeah. Well, that's a great point because I didn't think of it that way, but that does make a lot of sense. What I was thinking is that maybe he's so fast that it wasn't a one inch punch he pulled his hand back and you know punched and it was just so quick you couldn't even see it mm-hmm. yeah on like the old eight millimeter film or whatever that video is done on because i know the video you're talking about he hits the guy and the guy like falls back in the chair and the chair even rocks back mm-hmm. and then there's also you know chi like it's not with him it wasn't just physical like a you know and I don't want to say that like MMA guys are, you know, just strictly kickboxing or boxing don't use chi or anything like that. But this was something that was a big part of his regular practice mm-hmm. and meditation is being able to, you know, manipulate and control that energy. So he's sending, you know, the physical punch, but he's also sending his inner energy right through his fist yeah didn't mythbusters do an episode on that they were having people punch through like ice blocks or something and they they had just somebody who was really strong do it and then somebody who was like practiced that Mm -hmm. 
like and like basically energy control and had them do their thing and they like wind up and it's very much like what you would expect if you think this kind of thing is bs and you you know you expect them to look like an anime character but they actually hit harder and break through more stuff even though they're not Mm -hmm. necessarily as big as the other guy like they found that they really are able to do more somehow like to do more damage absolutely yeah i mean i i thought you were going in a different direction with that but yeah i mean that definitely definitely makes sense and when you when you look at bruce lee's fights and i saw i was able to find one video that was supposed to be a real fight and and they were both in full gear so it was you know i mean it definitely was bruce lee but um it's just the one real fight but when you see the fight choreography you know like maybe he throws a back fist so what that is is like if you're i don't know everybody knows what a back fist is right do i need to explain this it's basically like a pimp smack with a closed fist and you're hitting them with the you know the top of your hand and your knuckles Mm -hmm. and for someone well i mean you're real big dude so you could probably put some power behind it but for just an average person that's going to be a really weak punch but if all you need is an inch to punch hard enough to you know knock somebody back and down then that little back fist is going to be the same as you know like a cross from a big dude or something yeah so, anyway let's get back into this so lee stood facing an unnamed partner but he will be named later and delivered a punch from an inch away, sending his partner back and even falling into a chair. So like you said, it it was the one inch punch. He, I mean, it looked legit. It looked like he definitely got knocked back. I don't know if the falling out of the chair was a little theatrical, but you know, anyway, so the demonstration showcased Lee's remarkable power and precision and This is the guy that got hit. All right, so I told Bruce not to do this type of demonstration again. When he punched me that last time, I had to stay home from work because the pain in my chest was unbearable. At the 1964 championships, Bruce Lee crossed paths with Taekwondo master Jun Gu Ri, sparking a friendship that was beneficial for both martial artists. Ree taught Lee the intricacies of the sidekick while Lee shared his knowledge of the non-telegraphic punch. And basically, that's, I don't know, some of this stuff I feel like you need to have like, taken martial arts for a little bit. Well, I would think non-telegraphic. Know, at least just, know a little bit about Yeah, just meaning one that can't be predicted easily. Yeah, so it, it, it would be a punch that really wouldn't involve a lot of footwork mm-hmm. because if the footwork is going to telegraph what's coming but yeah it would just be a a way to kind of you know sneak one in so in 1964 in oakland's chinatown lee engaged in a controversial private match with wong jackman a student of ma fin kung known for his expertise in northern shaolin and tai chi and throughout my research tai chi was basically just mentioned right alongside with any other martial art so you know from what i've gathered this was seen by the chinese in a similar fashion to um you know karate or or whatever any kind of 
martial art. According to Lee's account, the Chinese community demanded he cease teaching non-Chinese individuals. Refusing to comply, Lee was challenged by Wong to a combat match. The terms were that if Lee lost, he would have to close his school. If he won, he could continue teaching people of any background. Kind of seems like a no-win for Bruce because he can just do that anyway. Yeah. But, you know, you don't want to be challenged. So... But Wong denied this version of the events. He said that he challenged Lee after Lee boasted during a demonstration in a Chinatown theater that he could defeat anyone in San Francisco. Wong clarified that he didn't discriminate against non-Chinese individuals and that his motivation for the match wasn't tied to the issue of teaching different ethnicities. Lee commented, That paper had all the names of the Sifu from Chinatown, but they don't scare me. So basically, a Sifu is going to be like the master at the dojo or whatever it's called in whatever martial art you're practicing. The details surrounding the fight between Bruce Lee and Wong Jackman. I just like Jackman. Jackman. (laughs) There's different accounts. Wong emphasizes that the fight concluded due to Lee's exhaustion rather than a definitive blow. However, Bruce Lee, Linda Lee Cadwell, and James Yim Lee have a different narrative. They contend that the fight lasted just three minutes with Lee emerging as the clear victor. Cadwell recalls that Lee brought his opponent to the ground and asked if he surrendered, to which the man agreed. Although Lee had initially shifted his focus to martial arts from a potential film career, an exhibition in 1964 led to an audition offer for a television role in Number One Son. While the show didn't materialize, this audition caught the attention of television producer William Dozier, who recognized Lee's potential. From 1966 to 1967, Bruce portrayed the character of the aforementioned Cato alongside the main character played by Van Williams in the TV series The Green Hornet, produced and narrated by William Dozier. What do you think of that show, Ryan? I loved it as a kid. Yeah, I'm sure you've watched a couple yeah, episodes. Yeah, I watched it as did. a kid. I always thought it was kind of a <clears throat> somewhat more believable version of Batman. Batman's gotten so blown out of proportion. Like his Well, he did Batman too. The same guy, yeah, Dozier, did the Batman, Batman series. I'm just talking right, about Batman yeah. today, like through a modern lens. Like I think Oh, God. I mean, they did that movie in the early 2000s, right? With, uh, was it Seth Rogen? Playing Batman. As Van Williams, or uh, as the, um, as Van Williams' character, whatever the main guy's name was. As the Green Hornet. Yeah, the actual Green Hornet. And, yeah, Yeah. Cato was played, like, Cato was the, you know, kind of the straight man the serious one, the one who really knew what he was doing, kind of just carrying along what's supposed to be the main hero. Dumb movie. Yeah. If I remember it right. But yeah, yeah, I remember the original series being pretty cool. I remember watching that as a kid. And I definitely agree with you. And I didn't even get through the Green Hornet with Seth Rogen. I got about 15 minutes in and I'm like, dude, I, I'll never get this back. But the original Green Hornet, I didn't watch a lot of, but it was definitely the Cato show. Yeah. I mean, you know, he played like, like, um, the Green Hornet was, you know, a good detective or whatever, but 
you know, Bruce Lee carried the yeah, show. Let's the put it that way, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So the series ran for just one season. Lee and Williams also appeared as their characters in three crossover episodes of Batman, another TV series produced by your boy, William Dozier. Mm-hmm. The Green Hornet marked Bruce Lee's introduction to the American audience and was the first popular American show to feature Asian-style martial arts. The show's director, at first, wanted Lee to use the typical American fighting style involving fists and punches. Due to his expertise as a martial artist, Lee declined and insisted on fighting in a manner aligned with his own skills. So, that would have been... Just think... If that show only had Bruce Lee doing, you know, like the big roundhouse punches in all the cowboy movies, it would have been such a huge waste. And he may have never been, you know, discovered. Right. Well, turned into the star that he became. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fights at the time were so lame in most shows. Mm -hmm. I mean, like... uh, even Batman back then. I mean, Batman was was basically a comedy. Well, not basically. It was a comedy. Yeah. Like there was nothing serious about it at all. But even like when you except look at, when they climb the wall. Yeah, that was that was very realistic and grounded. <laughs> when you look at, uh, like I was telling you before the show, I've been watching a lot of old Star Trek, and like the fights in that are terrible. Mm. There's a lot of like you said, like these big wind ups mm. and punches and then people clasping their hands together and like bringing them down on somebody's back. And it's just slow and clumsy looking. And it was, mm-hmm. this was a totally different thing. Totally different animal. Yeah, absolutely. So like we talked about earlier, he moved so fast that his movements couldn't be caught on film. So they had to slow them down. That's pretty crazy. So imagine being able to punch so fast that it can barely be captured at all on film. Crazy. I I can't imagine that like a director or anything had ever come across something like that before. Not with a human anyway. Maybe, you know, some animals, but. All right. So during the show's production, Lee became friends with Gene LaBelle, who worked as a stuntman in the show. The two trained together and exchanged martial arts knowledge from their respective specialties. After the show was canceled in 1967, Lee wrote to Dozier, thanking him for starting what he called my career in show business. After filming that one season of The Green Hornet, Lee found himself out of work and opened up the Jun Fan Gung Fu Institute. He took the view that traditional martial arts techniques were too rigid and formalized to be practical in scenarios of chaotic street fighting. Lee decided to develop a system with an emphasis on practicality, flexibility, speed, and efficiency. He started to use different methods of training, such as weight training for strength, running for endurance, stretching for flexibility, and many others which he constantly adapted, including fencing, and basic boxing. He emphasized what he called the style of no style. This consisted of getting rid of the formalized approach which Lee claimed was indicative of traditional styles. So basically what that sentence means is you're not going to be wearing a gi and getting different colored belts and you know learning katas and 
and things like that. It's going to be focused on, you know, real fights, mm -hmm. if, you know, you want to put it that way. So Lee felt that even the system he now called Jun Fan Gung Fu was too restrictive, and it eventually evolved into a philosophy in martial art he would come to call Jeet Kune Do, or the way of the intercepting fist. Is that better? Better than Jeet Kune Do? Sure. So he even regretted calling that later because the term Jeet Kune Do implied specific parameters that styles connote, whereas the idea of his martial art was to exist outside of parameters and limitations. And we'll get into it, but he really studied everything. During that period, two of Bruce Lee's martial arts students were Hollywood scriptwriter Sterling Siliphant and actor James Coburn. Sterling Siliphant, that's a pretty strong name. Yeah. In 69, the three collaborated on a script for a film called The Silent Flute and embarked on a location scouting trip to India. Although the project was not realized at the time, the 1978 movie Circle of Iron, featuring David Carradine, was eventually based on the same storyline. What are your feelings on David Carradine? I've liked him and everything I've seen him in. As an individual, I don't know anything really about him. I, I'm aware of how he died. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I, if I really like an actor, I avoid learning anything about them personally. Yeah, well, no, I, I didn't necessarily mean personally. I mean, it, it's, you know, the way he passed is sad uh we don't even need to mention it but as a as an actor i mean did you watch kung fu as a kid the western no actually i don't think so all right well lee expressed his desire to create a series with a western theme according to cadwell lee's concept was retooled and renamed Kung Fu, but Warner Brothers gave Lee no credit. The role of the Shaolin monk in the Wild West was eventually awarded to then non-martial artist David Carradine. So this was, I think, late 70s, early 80s. Oh, yeah, I'm looking at the it now. It's uh, 72 to 75 was the original series. They did a movie in 86 and then another series in from 93 to 97. Well, I must have seen reruns because I, I know I saw the original show and I know that it would have, I mean, I would have had to have been like at least 10 to be probably interested in mm -hmm. it. But in any case, I don't know. David Carradine, I think, did a good job. I think that he played a very calm, mellow Shaolin monk like what you would expect. Mm -hmm. But if Bruce Lee had played that, oh my gosh, that would have been a whole nother realm. Yeah. I mean, that would have been amazing. In an interview with the Pierre Burton show, Lee stated he understood Warner Brothers' attitudes towards casting him in the series. So before I read th this quote, I just want to say that this takes a lot of insight for him to, you know, and appreciation for how things run for him to come out and say this. So he, Bruce Lee said, they think that business-wise it is a risk. I don't blame them. If the situation were reversed and an American star were to come to Hong Kong, 
and I was the man with the money, I would have my own concerns as to whether the acceptance would be there. End quote. So, I, I mean, I think that says it all. So he wasn't content with his supporting roles in the U.S., so Bruce returned to Hong Kong. Unbeknownst to him, the Green Hornet had gained popularity in Hong Kong. Lee's first major role came in The Big Boss, a massive hit across Asia that catapulted him into stardom. He followed it with Fist of Fury, which shattered box office records set by his previous film. For his third film, The Way of the Dragon, Lee had complete creative control as the writer, director, star, and choreographer of the fight scenes. During a demonstration in Long Beach in 1964, Lee crossed paths with karate champion Chuck Norris. What do you think about Chuck Norris? <sighs> Not his personal. Yeah, life. I mean, he's just a meme at this point. I mean, I, that's anytime. I mean, somebody last night that I was talking to mentioned Chuck Norris, like did a, t- mm. a Chuck Norris joke. Right. And it's like, man, I'm sick of hearing that. I don't know. I mean, I liked him in well, Walker, Texas Ranger. That's what he's most known for. That's what I know most for. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, he's one of the ones where, you know, they were supposed to have this big rivalry, right? Mm-hmm. Even though Chuck Norris was one of his students. Right. But I don't know. I don't know. I can't imagine Chuck Norris taking on Bruce Lee. He wasn't, I mean, he was a little bit bigger, but it's not like Chuck Norris is, you know, six three two twenty. He He's a littler guy too. Well, I just I mean like the that, speed difference. Right. That, that's what I was going to say. Like, I, I think your best chance to beat him would to have been a lot bigger and a lot stronger. I don't think that if you're close to his size, you're going to have much of a chance. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Fist of Fury and the Way of the Dragon collectively grossed an estimated 100 million and 130 million worldwide. And I don't know if this is over the course of, you know, since they came out like including videos and stuff like that or it's just box office so it could be either but from august to october 1972 lee began work on game of death he began filming scenes including his fight sequence with seven foot two inch american basketball star kareem abdul jabbar who was a former student that's pretty scary if somebody who's seven foot two you know is a master martial artist (laughs) yeah it's like, you got enough going for you. Just take it easy. <laughs> However, only a few months after the completion of Enter the Dragon and six days before its July 26th, 1973 release, Lee died. Enter the Dragon went on to become one of the year's highest grossing films and cemented Lee as a martial arts legend. It was made for $850,000 in 1973, which would be $5.5 million for last year. I couldn't get a 2023, but $5.5 million for 2022, so it can't be more than, like, what, $7 million? Haha. Economy joke. Yeah. <laughs> Enter, Enter the Dragon is estimated to have grossed over $400 million worldwide, the equivalent of over $2 billion adjusted for inflation as of last year. Robert Klaus, the director of Enter the Dragon, collaborated to revive Bruce Lee's unfinished film, Game of Death. Lee had shot more than 100 minutes of footage for Game of Death before pausing to work on Enter the Dragon. 
The story centers around Lee's character, Hai Tien, wearing his iconic yellow tracksuit, facing various challengers in a five-level pagoda. Does that sound familiar? Is there another movie that kind of copied that? Yep, and I think it involved David Carradine. Yep, Kill Bill. I mean, that whole scene that you youngsters know about, actually Kill Bill's pretty old, but uh, that iconic scene is basically... 30-year-olds know about. But yeah, but that that scene where Uma Thurman is in that yellow tracksuit and she's fighting all those people in the pagoda. So that's kind of a tribute. However, a controversial decision led to Klaus completing the film using a lookalike and archive footage of Lee, along with new footage, creating a new storyline and cast. The version was released in 1978 and contained only around 15 minutes of actual Lee footage, with the rest featuring a lookalike and a stunt double. It's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. The unused footage that Lee had shot was discovered 22 years later and incorporated into the documentary Bruce Lee, A Warrior's Journey. And when I was a kid, I had like a five-piece VHS Bruce Lee collection that, you know, like a, a movie set. Like for you youngsters out there, they used to sell VHS and DVD and Blu-ray sets, you know, like all of the Indiana Jones or every Star Wars. Well, I had the Bruce Lee on VHS. That's how old. But you want to talk about martial arts and fitness after a quick break? Yeah. <laughs> all right. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Welcome back to More Booty and the Bandit. All right. So, Chinese martial arts, like Wing Chun or Tai Chi, boxing, street fighting, judo, taekwondo, karate, wrestling, kali, epee fencing, hapkido, various other styles by personal tutoring and research. Uh, these were all, I guess, the, the types of styles and activities that were incorporated. We talked before about how he would learn, you know, all kinds of different, I guess... Styles of fighting, movements, physical activities, things like that. Yeah, the reason this is significant is because all of these people that you're going to mention are some of the top people in that art, except Brother Edward was just a boxing coach at college, but in any case. Yeah, yeah so his teachers were Ip Man and Wong Shun Long, and those were teachers for, for Wing Chun. Uh, Brother Edward, like you said, for boxing, Jun Ri for Taekwondo, Fred Sato and Jean LaBelle for Judo, and Dan Inosanto for Kali. His notable students included Chuck Norris, Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate, James Coburn, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Brandon Lee, his son. Bruce Lee can't teach people to be yeah, Bruce Lee. He can teach people to be the best they can be, but you can't, you know, it's like the old thing where they talked about uh, Bob Gibson being a pitching coach and he's like well you just throw a 95 mile an hour slider that breaks six feet and that's how you get them out and it's like yeah we can't we can't do that we 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 can throw a 87 mile an hour slider that breaks mm-hmm. six inches you know you can't bruce lee can't say okay well you just punch them six times in one second so let's get into striking 
Lee's first introduction to martial arts was through his father, from whom he learned the fundamentals of Wu-style Tai Chi. Woo. The largest influence on Lee's martial arts development was his study of Wing Chun. Yip's classes, the instructor we mentioned before, not one of the Yip Yip Martians from yep. from Sesame Street or whatever that was. Uh, these classes consisted of the forms practice, sticking hand drills, wooden dummy techniques, and free sparring. Other Chinese martial arts styles Lee trained in were Northern Praying Mantis, Southern Praying Mantis, Eagle Claw, Tan Tui, La Hun. <laughs> Woo! You want to take over? Mizongi, Mizongi, Wakung, Monkey, Southern Dragon, Fujian White Crane, Choi Li Foot, Hungar, Choi Gar, Foot Gar, Mak Gar, Yakung Moon, Li Gar, and Lao Gar. And from what I understand, I mean, I know a little bit about Hungar, and it's kind of like arm grappling technique, kind of similar to Praying Mantis, but with different hand moves. And, and most of the time, the people would wear like big leather gauntlets around their wrists. There was a lot of wrist grabbing. And I'm assuming that Gar probably is like the way of the, you know, the hand or the foot or the grip or something like that but all i know is that a beefy fiveler burrito is the perfect countermeasure to hungar <laughs> that's <laughs> pretty bad you can cut that I no i'm leaving that <laughs> after moving to the u.s lee was heavily influenced by heavyweight boxing champion muhammad ali whose footwork he studied and incorporated into his own style in the 60s Lee demonstrated his Jeet Kune Do martial arts at the Long Beach International Championships that we talked about before in 64 and 68, with the latter having higher quality video footage available. Lee can be seen demonstrating quick eye strikes before his opponent can block and demonstrating the one-inch punch on several volunteers. He's also seen implementing his Jeet Kune Do concept of economical motion, using Ali-inspired footwork to keep out of range while counter-attacking with back fists and straight punches. He halts attacks with stop kicks and quickly executes several sweeps and head kicks. So let me let me get into this for just a second. Um, so we talked about the karate championships and what we're referring to with these quick eye strikes are he picks the karate champion. I forget what the guy's name is. And he says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to come up I'm going to use my right hand and punch you in the face. And if you can touch my hand, you win. And he just does it like six times. And the guy's like, you know, a second and a half late getting his hand up. And I don't mean like six real quick. I just mean like one quick jab can't six touch times and, they, uh... Yeah. And he knows exactly what's coming. So that's what that's talking about. A stop kick you, if you're into MMA, you might know them as oblique kicks, where basically you use it to create distance. You use your usually your front foot to kick the kneecap of your opponent and kind of try and hyperextend their leg and push them back. So that's what he's referring to as stop kicks. So as we mentioned before, he met Jun Guri at this championship in '64, the Taekwondo master. Uh, we talked about the non-telegraphic punch and the kind of exchange of knowledge that they had there and relearned what he calls the acupunch from Lee and incorporated it into American Taekwondo. This punch is a rapid punch 
that is difficult to block based on human reaction time. And his quote is, the idea is to finish the execution of the punch before the opponent can complete the brain-to-wrist communication. So that's fast. Mm-hmm. Milliseconds fast. I mean, not everybody's reaction time is good. But yeah, I mean, most people's reactions are pretty good. I mean, I'm sure everybody's had that moment where you, like, knock over a glass or something, but you manage to catch it before it actually falls all the way to the ground. Like, that's Feels the good, kind of reaction time it? you have to be able to beat. Yeah. Yep. Try that with soap in prison. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you commonly use the oblique kick, made popular much later in mixed martial arts. It is called the Jeet Tech, or Stop Kick, or Intercepting Kick in Jeet Kune Do, which you were just talking about. As far as grappling, he was an advocate of cross-training across different fighting styles and expressed a particular interest in grappling, which is something I hate. You don't like BJJ? <sighs> There comes out my signature Whoa, noise. <laughs> I just don't. I don't like uh, the way to take me down would be to get me on the ground. I don't like that. Oh, okay. You know, I've done some karate, some taekwondo stuff like that. I hate grappling. I just don't. I just don't like that kind of. It's where it usually ends up. Yeah, it is. It is. He engaged in training with various judo practitioners in both Seattle and California. Notably, many of his early students were well-versed in judo and other martial arts, creating a reciprocal learning environment. So a lot of collaboration, mm-hmm. which is what basically informs these styles. Lee also sought to expand his grappling knowledge through interactions with Ji Han Jae, a master of Hapkido, and incorporated elements of judo and catch wrestling into his approach. His open-minded approach to martial arts contributed to the development of Lee's unique and effective fighting style. While Bruce Lee expressed the opinion that grappling might not be as visually distinctive in action choreography, he still integrated grappling techniques into his own films. Lee recognized the value of incorporating various martial arts techniques to enhance the authenticity and effectiveness of his fight scenes and films. In particular, incorporating these moves where they aligned with the context of the story and the particular characters he was portraying. So then we get into street fighting, which was another major influence on Lee, and that specifically with Hong Kong street fighting culture in the form of these rooftop fights like he got in trouble with when he was younger. Mm-hmm. In this culture, there emerged a rooftop fight scene in the 50s and 60s where gangs from rival martial arts schools challenged each other to bare-knuckle fights on Hong Kong's rooftops in order to avoid crackdowns by British colonial authorities. That's the most badass thing I've ever read. I'm saying, man, that's real. I kind of want to just really bask happened. in that moment. <laughs> Alright, so as far as his fitness at five foot eight, which I'll have you know is one inch taller than Tom Cruise. <laughs> so he's not a big guy, but he's not exactly a little guy either. Mm-hmm. You want to use Tom Cruise as your benchmark. Uh, and weighing only 141 pounds. Well, I say only. He's 141 pounds of muscle. Right. That's it. He was renowned for his physical fitness and vigor achieved by using a dedicated fitness regimen to become as strong as possible. He felt that many martial artists of his time did not spend enough time on physical conditioning. He included all elements of total fitness, muscular strength, muscular endurance, cardiovascular endurance, and flexibility. And that's true. A lot of people who do like bodybuilding, like he did traditional bodybuilding techniques for muscle mass. Yeah, they can't take a kick me sign off their back. Yeah, yeah, they (laughs) overdo it. And that's something he tried not to do. He tried not to bulk up to the point that it would hurt his speed or flexibility. Right. And 
Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people who get really big like that, and then they're kind of useless. <laughs> I know the video <laughs> you're talking about where they put the sign on the back on the guy's back, and he can't get it. Yeah, but it's like, yeah, some people do become obsessed. big to the point that they're yeah they're obsessed, and they become big to the point that it's like almost not useful anymore. But I've also seen people. The job that I used to have, I wasn't working in a warehouse, but I was kind of putting in work orders for these guys, and they're carrying like computer equipment around. Mm-hmm. And the ones who were really good at it were like pretty fit, but there were one or two guys who were like really into fitness and really into bodybuilding, and they did it to look good. Right. And they're like, "Oh, well, I can. I'll take two of these and one of those, and you know, I'll be able to run this the quarter mile down here to the other end of the warehouse." And they're just dying by the end of it. Right, because they're not trained for endurance. They're just tra- yeah. they just built up a bunch of bulk to look the way they wanted to look, but they're they can't keep anything up. Well, that bulk needs a lot of oxygen and a lot of blood flow and a lot of energy. So. Yeah, I'm when I was doing this stuff, I was relatively fast, even though I'm big. Mm-hmm. Like I did a lot of strength training, but I was aware that you can overdo it. Yeah, now I'm just overweight. So that's my excuse. But I was relatively <laughs> fast for a big guy because I'm 6'3". But you anyway, mentioned that to tough guy. Not to brag. <laughs> <laughs> what did he write? So at the same, well, at the same time, uh, with respect to balance, he maintained that mental and spiritual preparation are fundamental to the success of physical training and martial arts skills. Which, I mean, you, it, I take this as like you have to be able to keep up with it. You have to be able to keep doing it. You have to have your mind in the right place, your intentions in the right place. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to know what you're doing it for. And I think a lot of people, you know, they play music to pump themselves up or they're like, I want to do this for my health so that I'm here for my kids. Mm-hmm. I want to do this so that I can be safe or whatever it is. So important things to think about because there's a lot more than just, you know, I met a guy one time who another business owner and his business was a fitness thing. He did you know, personal training kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about it and he was saying like, it's really hard to get people to keep doing whatever it is you tell them to do. Yeah. Like hiring a personal trainer is kind of a financial incentive to make you do it. It's like, well, I'm paying all this money. I ought to do the thing the guy's telling me to do. But yeah, I think it's, I think it's overlooked a lot of the time. But so one thing that Lee wrote was, Training is one of the most neglected phases of athletics. Too much time is given to the development of skill and too little to the development of the individual for participation. JKD ultimately is not a matter of petty techniques, but of highly developed spirituality and physique. I like that. According to Linda Lee Cadwell, soon after he moved to the United States, Lee started to take nutrition seriously and developed an interest in health foods, high protein shakes, and vitamin and mineral supplements. He later concluded that achieving a high-performance body was akin to maintaining the engine of a high-performance automobile. One could not sustain one's body with a steady diet of junk food, and with the wrong fuel, one's body would perform sluggishly and sloppily, which is true. Mm -hmm. And I recommend if it's healthy for you, maybe talk to a doctor first, because I don't want to just say that you should do this, but something I've done is, you know, take a couple days and go on like a water fast, and then reintroduce foods and see how they make you feel. Because you're going to find that like, oh, chocolate kind of amps me up first and then I crash really hard mm-hmm. or cheese makes me feel slow and sluggish or whatever, you know, it's a way of kind of seeing your body's natural reaction. Because I think just junk is so easy to get. <laughs> you're always kind of fueled by a little bit of junk food. 
Well, you were telling us about McDonald's on the Kappa show, so <laughs> don't listen yeah. to Ryan. So Lee avoided baked Lee avoided baked goods and refined flour, describing them as providing empty calories that did nothing for his body. He was known for being a fan of Asian cuisine for its variety and often ate meals with a combination of vegetables, rice, and fish. Dan Inosanto recalls Lee practiced meditation as the first action on his schedule. But what about his philosophy? You want to get into that? Yeah. Lee studied drama and Asian and Western philosophy, starting while a student at the University of Washington. He was well-read and had an extensive library, dominated by martial arts subjects and philosophical texts, not unlike Ryan's bookshelf. Mm -hmm. His eclectic philosophy often mirrored his fighting beliefs, though he was quick to say that his martial arts were solely a metaphor for such teachings. He believed that any knowledge ultimately led to self-knowledge. He said that his chosen method of self-expression was martial arts. His influence included Taoism, Jiddu Krishnamurti, and Buddhism. John Little states that Lee was an atheist, and John Little wrote a book on him. When asked in 1972 about his religious affiliation, Bruce Lee replied, none whatsoever. When asked if he believes in God, he said, to be perfectly frank, I really do not. But Bruce also wrote poetry reflected his emotion in a stage in his life collected. His daughter, Shannon Lee, said, quote, he did write poetry. He was really the consummate artist. We'll tell you about his death after a quick break. back crypt keepers on may 10th of 1973 leak collapsed during an automated dialogue replacement session for enter the dragon at golden harvest film studio in hong kong uh because he was having seizures and headaches he was immediately rushed to hong kong baptist hospital where doctors diagnosed a cerebral edema they were able to reduce the swelling through the administration of mannitol the headache and cerebral edema that occurred in his first collapse were later repeated on the day of his death on Friday, July 20th, 1973, Lee was in Hong Kong to have dinner with actor George Lazenby of Bond fame, although he only did one movie, with whom he intended to make a film. According to Lee's wife, Linda, Lee met producer Raymond Chow at 2 p.m. at home to discuss the making of the film Game of Death. They worked until 4 p.m. and then drove together to the home of Lee's colleague, Betty Ting Pei, a Taiwanese actress. The three went over the script at Ting's home, and then Chow left to attend a dinner meeting. Later Lee, comp- nope. Later, Lee complained of a headache, and Ting gave him a painkiller. Equagesic, I guess is how you'd say that, which I've never heard of. Now, this it's important to note, too, sorry, but we're talking, uh, what, early 1970s Hong Kong. Yeah. So it's not necessarily going to be anything we've ever heard of. They have their own medicine and whatnot, I'm sure, so... So this medicine consisted of both aspirin and the tranquilizer meprobamate. Woo, that was hard to get out. Around 7.30 p.m., he went to lie down for a nap. When Lee did not come for dinner, Chow came to the apartment but was unable to wake Lee up. A doctor was summoned and spent 10 minutes attempting to revive Lee before sending him by ambulance to Queen Elizabeth Hospital. 
He was declared dead on arrival at the age of 32. I mean, I know he said when he was born and when he died, but that is so young. Yeah, there was no visible external injury. However, according to the autopsy reports, his brain had swollen considerably from 1,400 to 1,575 grams, or a 13% increase. The autopsy found the equidesic in his system. On On October 15th of 2005, Chow stated in an interview that Lee died from an allergic reaction to the tranquilizer that was in that medication. The main ingredient in equidesic, which Chow described as an ingredient commonly used in painkillers. So like we're saying in the early 70s in Hong Kong. When the doctors announced Lee's death, it was officially ruled a death by misadventure, meaning essentially just an accident. Around the time of Lee's death, numerous rumors appeared in the media. His iconic status and untimely death fed many wild rumors and theories. This included murder involving the triads and a supposed curse on him and his family. Although there was initial speculation that cannabis found in Lee's stomach may have contributed to his death, the medical examiner said it would be both irresponsible and irrational to say that cannabis might have triggered either the events of Bruce's collapse on May 10th or his death on July 20th. Dr. R.R. Lissette, the clinical pathologist at Queen Elizabeth Hospital, reported at the coroner hearing that the death could not have been caused by cannabis. It's just... I mean, the things, you know, they they didn't really understand it as well back then, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. They should have. Yeah. It's been around for a while. In a 2018 biography, author Matthew Polly consulted with medical experts and theorized that the cerebral edema that killed Lee had been caused by overexertion and heat stroke. Heat stroke was not considered at the time because it was then a poorly understood condition. Furthermore, Lee had his underarm sweat glands removed in late 1972 in the apparent belief that underarm sweat was unphotogenic on film. Bet you didn't know that. No, I didn't know that. I, I have heard of procedures, like for people with uh, very clammy hands and things like that, or or just, well, no, I have heard of it for your underarms, I guess. You know, anybody who has like a sweating issue. You know what happens? Hmm. You know what happens, though? I heard you heart, Here's the thing. I heard you start sweating everywhere you else. Get, you got to sweat. Yeah, you got to sweat somewhere. Your body, I mean, I, I heard a story about somebody, I think it was their face. Like they could, they had their glands removed and then they're like every time they would get hot their face would just sweat intensely yeah I'm like eh. i'm pretty sure i read about somebody who did it for their hands or feet or something and then like they started sweating out the top of their head all the time yeah that's it was awesome. like yeah they're like i have hair coming or i have <laughs> i have sweat like pouring from my hairline all the time but you know for him it was different because like yeah, you, he doesn't think that sweaty armpits look good, but he does like to be sweaty, like when he's got his shirt off and he's fighting. Like he likes his chest and abs and arms and everything to be shiny. So maybe he just, uh, it's like, sh- I get those removed. I get more sweat on my chest. It's a win-win. Yeah. Polly further theorized <laughs> that this caused Lee's body to overheat while practicing in hot temperatures on May 10th and July 20th of 1973, resulting in a heat stroke that in turn exacerbated the cerebral edema that led to his death. So the the ultimate cause of death is unknown, although a few hypotheses have been proposed, from assassination by gangsters to a more recent suggestion in 2018 of this heat stroke. Uh, But we will cover a National Library of Medicine study after a quick break.
Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Okay, so we're going to try and keep it simple, as simple as we can, but this is kind of an involved study, but I think that it kind of shuts the door on everything, and I think that it's important to go through. So, in this paper, it's proposed that the kidney's inability to excrete excess water killed Bruce Lee. So it's basically some sort of kidney failure. So Lee had multiple risk factors for hyponatremia. And hyponatremia is low sodium, right? Mm. From now on, instead of saying low sodium, just know that hyponatremia is low sodium. So these risk factors may have included high chronic fluid intake, so drinking a ton of water, and factors that increase thirst like marijuana and decrease the ability of the kidneys to excrete water by either promoting secretion of antidiuretic hormone or interfering with water excretion mechanisms in kidney tubules. So basically what they're going to try and get at is he had super low sodium and drank a ton of water and his kidneys couldn't handle it. So there's prescription drugs, diuretics, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, opioids, anti-epileptic drugs, alcohol, chronic low-solute or sodium intake, a past history of acute kidney injury, and exercise. So these are all of his risk factors, right? These are not, I mean, they're everybody's risk factors, but these are, you know, specific to him. So, you know, he said, be water, my friend. So hypersensitivity to equijasic, which you keep laughing when I say, but <laughs> the medicine that he took. So the official cause of death, uh, but not the first time he had used it. There's no typical silicate overdose signs or symptoms, and we don't know anything about the toxicology report. This is right up my alley. Mm -hmm. Assassinated by mafia, Italian, Chinese, or American, two weeks before his death, Lee threatened a major Hong Kong producer, Lo Wei, who was reported to have mobster connections. But there's no evidence of physical injury or poison in the autopsy. Family curse. Lee's son, Brandon Lee, died at the age of 28. He was shot in a film set when a prop gun fired a live bullet. Bruce Lee's older brother died at the age of three months under mysterious circumstances, so... Yeah, a lot of tragedy in this family. Not a, not a lot of long lives. Lives or lifespans, however you want to say that. So cannabis, let's just put this one to bed. It had nothing to do with it. Yep. Heat stroke. Uh, the 20th of July, 1973, was reported to be a very warm day, uh, but not warmer than an average summer day in Hong Kong. Sudden death is unusual in circumstances like that. There is... No evidence of multi-organ dysfunction in the neck in the I want to say autopsy, but necropsy. The axillary gland removal three months before his death. 
is not enough to derange thermal regulation. It's not enough to stop him from being able to effectively cool himself down. He was studied months earlier because of profuse sweating. Hypothetical prior episode, um, you know, potentially related to his May 10th cerebral edema and hospitalization, but no evidence of episodes previous to that, but he was profusely sweating on that particular day. So, you know, kind of anecdotal evidence that it could have been something, but, you know, they're saying that the removal of the sweat glands wasn't enough to, like, really make him overheat more than he would have. Because, like you said, he was was sweating all the time in those movies. (laughs) It's not like when they, you know, they've discovered that if you, like, paint somebody, like the golden woman from the Bond movies, like, you had to have Mm. some large enough patch of skin uncovered to allow them to thermoregulate, but just the armpit sweat glands wouldn't do it what about cocaine (laughs) well it has been reported that lee requested cocaine in writing to bob baker so they tested for it but there was no evidence of cardiovascular comorbidity and no positive toxicology report announced he did make reference to cocaine in one of his diaries i believe but yeah this i I don't think this was like a regular thing that he did yeah just obviously there was nothing found in his system yeah we're kind of just going through everything somebody might mention but as far as the next one epilepsy so he did have a seizure on may 10th before he was diagnosed with the cerebral edema but didn't show signs of being chronically epileptic. You know, didn't have a history of this sort of thing. He didn't have bite marks on his tongue, which is, you know, a, a typical sign of a seizure like that, but did get on treatment with anti-epileptic drugs. So, yeah, when he actually passed, he was on anti-epileptic drugs. So it's not likely that given no history really of seizures that, uh, he would even be on them but you know just in case i guess so so what about some facts some facts about bruce lee's death are public he experienced headache and dizziness around 7 30 p.m after drinking water ting pei gave him an equagesic pill which as we said is a combination of some sort of tranquilizer and also kind of reported as an opioid too and an aspirin which he had taken before and then Lee went to the bedroom to rest then as we said Chow left and Ting Pei found Lee unconscious and unfortunately she called Chow who went to the house and we don't have like a timeline of how long that took but man, that seems like a missed opportunity. Yeah, we just know that she found him at 9.30. So headache and dizziness at 7.30, two hours later, found unconscious and couldn't wake him up. Yeah, and if you ever think that you might need to call 911 about something, like somebody's dying on your floor, just call 911. Don't call somebody else over to help you. Mm-hmm. Well, they called a doctor who spent another 10 minutes unsuccessfully doing CPR. So at this point, you know, who knows how long it's been. Lee was sent to the nearest hospital and was pronounced dead. And it was officially ruled to be the result of cerebral edema 
caused by hypersensitivity to equigesic. What about the theories? Yeah, so there are a few plausible and implausible causes of death, but there are three that should be discussed, and we kind of briefly touched on them earlier. Hypersensitivity to the components of equigesic, or equigesic, uh, aspirin and meprobamate which was identified as the official cause of death. However, Lee had taken the drug before, and on the day of his death, he took it after he felt unwell. He was already having symptoms that may be explained by cerebral edema, like a headache, and would not be expected to be the only necropsy finding if hypersensitivity to this was the cause of death. I would think that that would be more likely to include uh, petechial hemorrhaging, swelling of the, you know, the throat, and you know the nose trouble breathing more you know of a um more of a typical reaction for like an allergy you know what i mean an anaphylactic reaction so the next one like we we discussed just very briefly was epilepsy a seizure was considered a potential cause of the may 10th incident although it was a lone episode and he was not diagnosed with epilepsy On May 29th and 30th, he underwent a full neurologic evaluation, a complete physical, uh, a brain flow study, and an electroencephalogram. That's a word I'm used to hearing but not seeing. Reviewed by neurologist David Riceboard, who did not find abnormalities in his brain functions. Either way, phenytoin, which sounds like I'm putting an accent onto this name, but that's how it's spelled, was prescribed, (laughs) and Lee was on this up until the day of his death. The most important direct epilepsy-related cause of death is a sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, or SUDEP, which is more common in patients with chronic epilepsy, not a single incident of it, or you know, a single incident of an epileptic seizure. Right. Yeah, forensic reports often include tongue bites in cases like this as well. The fact that he had no chronic epilepsy, was on an anti-epileptic drug, and had no tongue bite in the necropsy argue against the idea that it was epilepsy that did it. But we'll get back to the heat stroke. That was the most recent one. The latest hypothesis about the cause of his death was proposed by Matthew Pauly in his 2018 book, Bruce Lee, A Life. Heat stroke refers to when the body core temperature rises above 40 degrees Celsius, associated with hot, dry skin and central nervous system abnormalities. Typically, heat stroke results from strenuous exercise or an inability to regulate body temperature in patients with risk factors such as old age, obesity, heart disease, dementia, and others. And obviously, he had none of those. Initially, heat exposure leading to hyperthermia causes a systemic inflammatory response syndrome disruption of the blood-brain barrier, and cerebral edema. Typically, the disorder has a three-phase sort of pattern, resulting in the death after 24 to 96 hours, and sudden death is unusual. So they would have gone through phases of heat stroke. It wouldn't have just been, Mm -hmm. I don't feel well, I'm going to take a nap two hours later, it's over. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Pauly hypothesized that Lee's removal of the sweat glands in his armpits for aesthetic reasons a month prior to the May 10th incident could have increased his risk of heat stroke. However, sweat is produced through most of the skin surface and the output varies. So it's unlikely that this removal could have caused a heat stroke on its own. He further suggested that the May 10th incident was probably also due to heat stroke and that both days had been uncharacteristically warm for Hong Kong. 
However, profuse sweating was described during the May 10th episode despite the gland removal. And the 77 to 90 degree temperatures are common in Hong Kong and there's no evidence that a previous heat stroke episode is a risk factor for a recurrent one. Overall, the time, course, ability to sweat, and lack of extreme weather and of reports by witnesses of excessive heat or skin temperature or dry skin despite a warm environment argue against heat stroke. So he was sweating, he was acting fine, the weather wasn't too wild. Yeah, I think on the hottest day it was like 90 degrees. Yeah, according to people in the area, people that knew what was going on that, you know, doesn't line up. I overdid it this episode. I'm willing to admit that. As I was doing this deep dive into the death of Bruce Lee, it kind of all made sense. As I was reading it over and over and redoing things, reconstruct or like reconfiguring the paragraphs, it made sense. But when we read it all out, it was just too much. So, yeah. So, and we couldn't really figure out a way to kind of simplify it. So we just had to break it down to uh, brass tacks, as Ryan likes to say. So basically what we're saying here and what this, this is what I believe. I don't know where you stand yet, but I believe in this study that was done. And basically what they're saying, it was a cerebral edema that killed Bruce Lee, which is basically a brain bleed, right? Right. So Bruce Lee, in his diet and training, tried to eliminate as much sodium as possible. And your doctor will tell you, hey, your sodium's high. Well, your sodium and Bruce Lee's sodium are different because you know, you are not a Ferrari. You're not a Lamborghini. He is, or was, and wanted to keep his sodium way down. So he was on a super low sodium diet, right? And we talked about uh, basically towards the end, it was carrot juice and apple juice, which I don't know if either of those have any sodium in them. And I know what you're saying. You're saying war booty, why do we need sodium? Why can't we just drink Gatorade or something? Well, Gatorade has a ton of sodium in it because you have to balance your electrolytes. <laughs> and if you don't, you have super low sodium, super high water intake, and your kidneys cannot keep up. So you're taking in a ton of water and you're hardly peeing at all because it's basically tricking your kidneys into not... Uh, Yep. You know, not releasing all this water. So the kidneys couldn't keep up and the blood became super thin, watered down and leaked out of his brain, causing this cerebral edema or, you know, it was the cerebral edema. And that is what, you know, eventually killed him. Yeah. There were other theories, but that seems to be the one that's really it. Well, you know, when I got into this, and I'm sure you felt the same way, and probably the listener too, oh, we want to hear about how the Chinese triad killed him. Well, I mean, that makes for a good story, but we have to 
cover the facts. And yeah, and the only support for that was that he pissed off somebody who was connected at some point, but there was no other evidence that we found, right? Right. And there's no evidence that I've ever come across of anyone killing someone by causing a cerebral edema by keeping them from having salt. You know what I mean? It's not like he was in a in a hot cage and they said, oh, no, no Gatorade for you. No, yeah, nothing. Yeah. And he died. So, I mean, if they did that, my hat's off to you because that is a masterful plan that can never be traced back to you. And I think if that was the case, we'd see a lot of enemies of the Chinese triad dying of cerebral edemas and instead we see them chopped up and shot and stuff like that so i think that's out right and then you know what i I had always heard was oh it was an aspirin bruce lee never touched any sort of medicine his entire life because he was so healthy and so focused that he just never needed anything. And then he took that aspirin and I guess, you know, theoretically aspirin is a blood thinner, but it's not going to, you know, cause a, an edema on its own. But just that, you know, this Western medicine was just so insane that his body had no way to react to it. And that's what killed him. So that could have been, hey, Chinese triad, here, take an aspirin. But the facts don't back that up. That should clear it up, hopefully, for Bruce, right? So the thing is, actually, where I was going, my dog distracted me, little bitch, um, that this was not the case. Bruce Lee took a lot of medication. (laughs) He drank alcohol. He used cannabis. He uh, apparently either did or wanted to use or try cocaine. And these are all things that may have contributed, but we'll get into the summary of evidence now. Do you want to take us into the summary? Sure. So the answer to the question of whether Lee had factors predisposing him to hyponatremia is yes. Not only one, but a few. So he had high chronic fluid intake, like we talked about. Factors that it, that could increase your thirst and just naturally make you drink more water would be marijuana. Apparently that can give you, like, cotton mouth. It would it wouldn't make you yeah. drink <laughs> right. It's it, not like you're drink gonna, water in like a pathological way. It's not like something just, it's uncontrollable. that really I don't even think should be taken as a factor unless they say unless they say well if he wouldn't have had that last you know cup of water he would have survived but he got high and needed a drink and I just don't think that's the case. Yeah, I think it was pointed out because. It was just much less accepted back then. Yeah. And probably especially in Hong Kong because they ended up being super strict on everything. So there's also evidence that he was drinking water quite a bit on the day that he died. Quite a water (laughs) lad. Yeah. yeah. So he had 
a number of factors decreasing his kidneys ability to get rid of this water just like we were talking about prescription drugs he had diuretics opioids anti-epileptic drugs he used alcohol chronically low uh, sodium intake or solute intake and potentially a decrease in glomerular filtration rate Woo. Not I got, sure I got that word on one try there you go <laughs> yeah something was mentioned in this stuff okay these factors could have caused a risk for essentially that he might have had hyponatremia mm -hmm. but it was undiagnosed or unnoticed um and it could have you know just developed and gotten worse and kind of affected his mental state mm-hmm this pre-existing hyponatremia is found in over 70% of all patients with symptomatic hyponatremia and represents the most common risk factor identified. So having it before makes you more likely to have it again. We yeah. know he had the issue on the 10th of May. So having, having something like this again could indicate that it's the same thing coming back, but it's just has to do with his diet as opposed to, you know, the, cannabis or whatever they want to blame it on right yes i don't know if there's really anything more to say about this actually about the drugs part of it it's just the drugs dr when we're saying drugs we mean prescription drugs things that he was taking anyway you know his diet this liquid diet that he was on the diuretics the low salt intake all that stuff probably contributed to this condition already existing causing problems on may 10th and not being properly diagnosed, so they just put him on other medications, thinking it was epilepsy, something like that. Because who knows what doctors really know? Well, and who knows what he told them? He might not have said, I have drank, you know, four gallons of water last night. Yeah, they might have just said, are you doing anything unusual? And he's like, no. Because mm -hmm. he might do stuff like this all the time. I doubt it was his first time going on. He probably just gave the doctor a dirty look and shook his finger. No, no, no. Yeah, he just dropped to the ground and started doing two finger push-ups. And yeah. the doctor's like, all right, I guess I guess this is fine. Just take these drugs and get out of here. But And that being said, it's hard to you know tell somebody that is superhuman that they're doing something wrong. You know, like, what the fuck do you mean I'm doing something wrong? I can punch you six times before you can blink your eye. I'm doing everything right. And Yeah. But, you know, a lot of this, yeah. I think, was yeah. for aesthetics. It looked good. To be ripped and muscular and not sweaty armpits. <laughs> right. And something I was thinking about was actually the low salt intake, which would which you would think would cause like low levels of water retention, mm -hmm. especially with the diuretic. Um, who was it? Hugh Jackman talked mm -hmm. about how he had to get ready for like shirtless scenes in the Wolverine movies or the X-Men movies, mm -hmm. depending on which ones you're a fan of <laughs> and which ones mm -hmm. you've seen. But he talked about, and I've heard this before in interviews with actors, that they will purposely get really dehydrated. Yeah. Because it makes their muscles and their veins and things stand out more. So, like you said before, there are aesthetic reasons for this as well. And I think things have changed a little bit because, yeah. you know, I got into like weightlifting. I mean, I don't want to call it bodybuilding because. I definitely never looked like a bodybuilder, but I read a book. Uh, oh, what's the guy's name? Joe Mantelaniglio or something like that. He played the werewolf 
in uh, True Blood. Now, this dude's ripped oh, okay. like this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's fucking ripped. This dude is, you know, basically what everybody would strive to look like. And in his book, he talked about how he got ready for these scenes. And he did not, you know, do diuretics. At least he didn't talk about it in the book. And it could have been, you know, just like, hey, I can't really say that because I don't want people to do it and die. But he talked about getting ready for scenes where he would just, you know, just go nuts lifting and get all the muscles just pumped to the fullest extreme with blood. You can see the veins everywhere and stuff. Never did he ever say anywhere in his book about diuretics or any of this crazy stuff that you know, Bruce Lee was doing. And, and it could just be that, you know, maybe that stuff didn't work quite as well as, as they thought it did. You know, maybe it made a 2% difference in the way you looked and not a 20% difference. So they just don't do it anymore because it's not worth the risk. But that's out there. All right. You want to talk about conclusions? Yeah, let's get to it. All right. So the study that we went over in great detail and then deleted hypothesized that (laughs) Bruce Lee died from a specific form of kidney dysfunction. And that's the inability to excrete enough water to maintain homeostasis, which is mainly a tubular function. And when we say tubular, we mean kidneys, you know, urine. Uh, It's, it's not some, I mean, it's helped when you sweat, but you really, you have to be able to urinate. It's just something you have to do. If you can't do it, you die. So that is probably, you know, what led to this uh, high sodium and, or I'm sorry, low sodium and the cerebral edema. And it happened within hours because, you know, your body has to get rid of that stuff. It's apparently pretty frequent and it's found in up to 40% of hospitalized people and may cause death to excessive water ingestion, even in young healthy persons like Jennifer Strange that I did, I do think I left in. Uh, so they need they need more studies on it. But, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that excessive water can kill you if you, if you drink too much. And that statistic was startling. of people in the hospital? That's crazy. And now they're not saying that, you know, four out of every 10 people come in and they have uh, this issue, this low sodium and inability to excrete water. And that's why they're there. They're saying that they're admitted for this, that, and the other thing. And then they find this as kind of a, maybe a contributing factor as to why they ended up there. Is that what you're getting out of it? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the fact that we are 60% water does not protect us from the potentially lethal consequences of drinking water at a faster rate than our kidneys can excrete the excess water. Ironically, Lee made famous the quote, Be water, my friend. But excess water appears to have ultimately killed So you can be like water, but you can't be water. So anyway final thoughts after a quick break.
Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. What's your final thoughts, Ryan? Uh, just that it's tragic. Mm-hmm. We said he was 32 when he passed. Yep, prime. That's so young. I mean, anybody that's younger than me is like, oh my gosh, so young. But I mean, 32 is super young. And we were, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of celebrities who die young for, you know, like drug use or, you know, mental issues that come up. Yeah. I mean, we've seen a lot of issues of celebrities with, or instances, I should say, of celebrities with just problems handling it. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Corys back in the day when they were they were child stars and yeah. like you just don't have a normal life when you're like that. But in this case, it was a guy who was at the top of his field in peak condition who seems to have just gone a little bit too far with something that I guess would be, you know, pretty routine otherwise. Mm-hmm. Just a special diet. I mean, I had a friend who did a water fast. I think he said it was in high school and wound up in the hospital for a while. Now, when you say water fast, do you mean not drinking water or just drinking water? Just drinking water. Okay. Yeah, not taking on anything else. And I've done those too, but, you know, I I mentioned earlier, like, don't do it. Don't do it without consulting a doctor. Yeah. Don't be like me because I did it without consulting a doctor, but... Well, you probably weren't drinking eight liters of water a day no. either. And I was listening to my body, too. You know, mm-hmm. I'd start to get a headache or I'd get weak or shaky, and I'd be like, okay, I think I need protein or I need this or whatever, so I would stop. I've done a couple of them, but it's like you have to be really careful when you do something like that. And I'm guessing Bruce Lee had probably done things like that before. Yeah. You know, kind of clear out your system by just doing a liquid diet for a little while imagine the pressure on him you are representing china that's a that's a lot of pressure you know what i mean it's you are the one that changed the stereotypical roles that asians played that's a lot of pressure and you know he was married had a couple kids that's a lot of pressure writing directing choreographing different movies going on at the same time that's a lot of pressure you have to be ready to shoot at a moment's notice yeah and plus he had a wife and kids mm -hmm. they probably wanted to spend some time with him too yeah in any case i i in my personal opinion this pretty much shuts the door on the conspiracy theories because until somebody can tell me how somebody forced him to do all this, it's death by misadventure. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like the Lemp family where it's like kind of semi mysterious suicide, some in the same room, some under really similar circumstances that are, you know, it's like, what's going on? Yeah. You know, that this is a trend at this point, but this is just tragic. But I think because he was so iconic mm-hmm. and so famous, it's hard to accept. Yeah. That it's like, oh, he just died from this, like, ordinary thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's a great point. I, I had another thought earlier that with the doctor, I mean, the doctor could have just been a little bit starstruck. True. 
or whatever. I mean, I've I've met some famous people before, and I've never really cared too much. Mm-hmm. But, but if you I, met I've Bruce met, Lee, <laughs> if I met Bruce Lee, I would I would be like, yeah, whatever you want. Like, if, yeah. you know, if you're you his doctor, get you some you, yeah, if you're his doctor, you may not question everything in as much depth as you maybe should. Right. You know, we had uh, Emilio Estevez come into the bar one time. Looking for a job? <laughs> no, no, he was just looking to have a drink. He was in the area, came in, you know, and he was like, oh, you know, what's this? What's that? And I found myself, even though it's, I'm not, it's not that I'm not impressed. I'm just not, I'm not going to like fanboy, but it's like, holy right. shit, Mighty Ducks, Young Guns, like, this guy Charlie was Sheen's brother? My, like, childhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't have any hepatitis on your shoes, do you? <laughs> Wipe them but it's like, I, I kind of found myself wanting to be much more accommodating to him than I would somebody else. Although, yeah. ultimately, I just wound up leaving him alone. It's like, well, he clearly wants to just be left to do his own thing. So, Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, the same thing. If you're, if you're dealing with somebody on the level of Bruce Lee at the height of his popularity, you might not want to question him. You might just want to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever you're doing is probably great because look at you. Exactly. Like, what you're able to do. Like, you know, you tell me what I should be doing. Right. You're doing two finger, two finger pushups and one inch punches and stuff like that. <laughs> one of my favorite scenes in one of the Bruce Lee movies is uh, these guys are all. Uh, it's like at an ice pick factory. Like, why would you pick a fight with Bruce Lee at an ice pick or an ice factory? So there's like ice picks everywhere, and uh, so there's of course like twenty guys that gang up on him and they start throwing the ice picks and knives at him and stuff and he's dodging everything and they're just sticking in this wood wall behind him and then eventually he's like, Oh, I've got access to thirty knives now and just starts grabbing them and chucking them <laughs> at people. You know, it's like don't throw a loaded gun at somebody. <laughs> at least make yeah. sure that you've used everything before you, you know, hurl it at your your uh attacker or whatever but so yeah i think that pretty much closes the door on that and it's anticlimactic and i know everybody wants to hear but wait the triad did do it or you know it was a martial arts uh rival that did it yeah some kind of vendetta but it just is what it is and i guess with that for uh this one you want to tell them what they need to know yeah yeah you're making me think about David Carradine's like death punch thing from Kill Bill. Wasn't I don't that movie? remember that. I'm pretty sure there was something he could do where he can kill you with one hit. There know, is, maybe I'm thinking uh, of a different movie. There is, uh, I can't remember if it's Mooduck Kwan or oh, maybe Kim Sudo, something like that is One Touch Death. and Maybe that's it. That's supposed to be a thing. And if Bruce Lee, you know, said, hey, I bet I can kill you with one punch, I'd be like, fuck, I can't outrun you. I can't outfight you. You could probably dodge bullets. So why don't you just kill me quickly and try and make it painless, please? Yeah, Bruce Lee is basically like Ozymandias in uh, Watchmen. Ozymandias in Watchmen. Is that the... So uh, fast he can catch a bullet. Hmm. Like at the end, he's fighting. I haven't seen it in a long time, and I focused on Rorschach. Ror- yeah. You know the guy that wrote that said that he meant for Rorschach to be like a really unlikable character? And then realized yeah. over the course of it that Rorschach's like kind of the hero and the fan favorite? 
Yeah, I just wish he was in black and not brown. I feel like that's a really good... That, that's a really good storyteller. Mm-hmm. When you're writing a character and following a story and trying to make them react in a realistic way and you realize something about the character that you maybe didn't intend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Alright, so on to what you should know. If you want to tell us your theories about how Bruce Lee died... Or if you know something that we didn't cover here, please let us know, and we'll definitely mention it on the show. You can do that at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. For sure. You can check out our friends over at Parabox in the link in the show notes, and you can check out what we're selling at crypticpodcast.com. And as always, like, subscribe, comment, share, rate, whatever you can do on your particular platform. All of it helps for algorithms or other people to know that it's so. Hey, more people should listen to it. (laughs) All right. So in the after party Thursday, we're going to tell you about Bruce Lee's son, Brandon, and his tragic death on the set of the movie, The Crow. What do we always say? Don't sleep, Cryptique. Good evening, Crypt Keepers.